reuse, recycle, reimagine. When we take the energy of innovation and combine it with the practice of salvation, you get salivation. Hey, Jay, Mike, Hello and welcome to Pod 49, a Lodge 49 fan conversation recap show of the AMC Network show Lodge 49, which is currently just on the back half of its second and hopefully, hopefully not last season. I'm starting to prep the fandom out there to get ready to uh, raise a ruckus here, but we are now Still in the excitement of having a season to talk about, so let's not dwell in the future too much. Jim is off gallivanting somewhere in the continent of Europe. I'm not sure what adventures and misdeeds he will be getting up to. Hopefully he'll give us a little bit of recap when he checks back with us. So in his stead, we have called in one Mark Balgavy, who is a Lodge 49 fan Uh, a fan of all things television and media, and was the first person I personally know that published a podcast back in the 1870s or thereabouts. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed all the episodes and uh, am very nervous about filling Jim's uh, successful shoes here. It's going to be all right. Uh, You will be fine. You're in a a warm embrace here, Balgaby. All right, so let's jump right into it. Round of hot takes. We've all obviously watched the latest episode. Bart, hot take. Uh, my hot take this week is uh, about isolation. It seems that it comes up as a theme a lot in the show. We've got, you know, Blaze obviously has been wandering for 30 years. As he says, you know, Dud mentions how lonely he is. Obviously, Ernie's going through that. And Scott, Connie, I mean, it just seemed to be a big theme of the show. And uh, something Mark was mentioning, too, is that also that that isolation leads to a reconciliation with the past. Talked about a little bit about the past being a big part of the show. I think last episode in this one, it's a lot of the past, but a lot of a lot of things are answered about the past of a lot of the characters. Yeah, it was a very heavy episode, I thought. Kind of left me feeling a little, I don't know what, you know, a little a little blue. Um, I sort of felt what they were sort of going through. And, um, yeah, it was a very powerful, moving episode, I thought. And, yeah, it had a lot to do with the character's isolation. All right, Mark, here's your first big insight. Are you ready to lay your hot take on us? What I kind of came down to is the idea of the decency of people gets us through when the the hang gets tough. You guys have, have captured that idea and talked about that idea before, of how this show is a good hang. It's uh, an idea talked about in modern reviews of television. And I think this is an episode where the hang got pretty tough. As Bart said, everybody was isolated. But then as I was watching it and started looking at some of our characters here, I realized that they're all really decent people. Scott's decent. Ernie's decent. Like, all of these characters are trying to do the best for the people around them. Uh, Liz is helping out her staff. And Ernie is is could be mad about not getting all the money. He's friendly and decent and supportive of Dud. So I think it's that decency, Bart, that should redeem this isolation you're feeling and kind of give you a little warmth to to feel good about going forward. Yeah, that's what the lodge. I mean, that's why the lodge exists. It seems that's a, what all the 
why the, all the characters uh, revolve around it. My hot take is going to go a little bit meta because I think coming off such a... It wasn't quite a bottle episode, um, which means it kind of self-contained. It obviously was continuing to weave the story through. But last week's was such a special episode that I think many shows would have a bit of a hangover effect. And what I, I loved about this episode was it, it totally embraced that it was a bit of a plot Re, you know, re-entry episode, like kind of the normal pacing and kind of like the, you know, the bouncing around of the different character storylines. And in, instead of that being awkward, it totally felt seamless, even in places where it looked and felt different and had different tonal shifts. It felt like by embracing its re-emergence into our kind of current timeline and current plotting, it actually really embraced those pieces, did that super well, was really tight on how it did that and made a really impactful hour in actually moving us along in these character storylines in a way that felt, I don't know, very res- responsible is the wrong word. It felt very understanding of the episode that it was following, which really gives me even greater faith of the overall creative team to, to manage the story of this show to wherever it's going to go. I just think weekly they they reward my faith that the show knows what it's doing and where it wants to go. And this episode really signified that for me. Yeah, I think uh, hats off to the writers of this episode. They uh, there was a lot of like heavy dramatic scenes where characters kind of spilled their guts, you know, in a way. And um, I I I think that that's a very difficult thing to pull off well. Um, you can kind of get into. Uh, sense of the melodramatic a little bit too far you know it's very typical in tons of shows like there was just so much there were so many heavy scenes and uh but they were really they were all written really well and so that it it was powerful more than you know sometimes that stuff could be kind of cringy you know and it was not at all all right bart that's a good segue why don't you're gonna step in and uh pinch hit for Jim on this one why don't you give us who was at the top of the uh creative management of this particular episode. And actually, do you even have the episode's name handy? The episode title is Exile. It was written by Valerie Armstrong, Micah Craddy, and Andy Ciara. They all have uh, writing credits. It says in IMDb that it's in alphabetical order, so I'm assuming that that's like a third, third, third split. They all have a bunch of writing credits for this show in particular, um, Lot 49. And then it was directed by Maurice Marable, who... It looks like also directs next week's episode as well. And that's something that I noticed the show does. They do a lot of like give directors like two episodes at least back to back so that they get to, I think it gives them a little bit of a more breathing space creatively and sort of know they're, they're helming kind of a couple episodes in a row in terms of tone and stuff like that. So that's great. Thank you, Bart. Actually, we're recording this a little bit earlier than we usually do. So I actually don't, they haven't, uh, Tune Find does not have the full track listing of artists for the original music that was used in this show. So we will have it by the time we publish this episode. So check out the show notes, and I'll maybe I'll put a little bit of extra detail about those artists there since we don't get it to it on the show. But I actually, on a music tip, do want to follow up on one thing from last week, is in that via Twitter I was able to unearth the details about who did the cover of the Scott original Eric Allen Kramer original at the end of last week's episode. Thomas Patterson, the music supervisor, answered this on Twitter. And it was actually Juliana Giraffe, and she's of the band Midnight Sister. And her working with Andrew Carroll, who scores all of the music on the show, 
work together to record the version of Scott's song that runs in the credits. Uh, she also does any vocal work that needs to be done on the show for the score. She is the vocalist. So it's kind of a continuation of the, the collaboration between Juliana Giraffe and Andrew Carroll. And Thomas Patterson says he is actively working on a way uh, for that song, that version, to be streamed and listened to online. So uh, if that's coming out in the time, we'll put it in the show notes. If not, we'll tweet it out, etc. So um, I would hope in the next week or two we have a way to listen to the full version of that track. So do have some musical updates there. As we've been doing, we're experimenting with different ways to do the recap. Uh, see what we like. We'll probably get it right just as season two <laughs> ends, but uh, we'll apply it just to the, the hopeful optimism of season three. So we're going to jump right in. Bart, you're going to, oh, this, let me explain what we're going to do. We're going to just pick out five, what we thought were the key plot points and give a little bit of a, a, a rundown and recap of those. So, uh, and no particular order in terms of importance, but Bart, why don't you start us off with our first big plot point? I think we termed it uh, Blaze's Descent. Blaze seems to have been like wandering around. It looks like he hasn't slept. I mean, it's something I was thinking about when he was in the egg room. When Dud finds him, the first thing I thought was, um, wait, how did he eat? Yeah. You know, like maybe he has a jug of water or something. But I mean, never mind the no sleep. It seems like he's been in there for uh, like a week or so. And so I was just wondering, like, but it seems like he's so he's just so headfirst into this uh, reading the diaries and trying to connect all the dots that he's just kind of on this manic journey to get it all out before he somehow loses it or something like that. And that's what's kind of keeping him going. Um, so anyway, uh, this uh, it, it opens up with him in the laundromat and he's kind of staring at the, the, the clothes in the dryer, which I thought maybe might be a little bit of a kind of... Um, if the orbiscope is something that you look into to kind of help soothe your nightmarish dreams or something like that. Maybe the spinning of the um, the dryer and the laundromat maybe having a similar effect for Blaze at that moment. But of course, then there's that funny line where the guy asks him if he's almost done and he's like, oh, none of this is mine. None of this is yours. Um, I like that just- sh- shot to jump in, Bart, just the idea that that yeah. was pulling us back to the circles, which seemed to have been strongly discussed and, and covered in previous episodes. I feel like visually, as Chris said, this episode continues to push us along a path. Yeah, definitely. Circle is a big uh, theme of the whole series, at the, or especially second season. Blaze has that great line where he says, it's all a forgery, and then walks out of the uh, laundromat and um, almost gets hit by the car, and of course he <laughs> just doesn't bother. Uh, he's in, you know, if if life is a forgery, then he's not going to be hit by a car. It's not going to hurt him, anything like that. Nothing is mine. Nothing is yours. Um, then later, Blaze and Dutter at the trailer... A really interesting shot when they introduce Blaze. He looks like a like a tiny person. It's kind of coming from the perspective of the um, the oil rig, and, the dragon. Uh, it's not, into, yeah, the dragon, and he looks like he's been shrunk. You know, like it almost looks intentional or something. Until Dud walks on the scene, and then you get some sort of perspective. But I thought he looked like um, like he'd been shrunk by uh, Willy Wonka's machine or something. This tiny little Blaze. And he gives, uh, yeah, he gives uh, uh, the uh, amulet of the shark tooth. Very nice moment there, I thought. And uh, has and then says, "We have to accept the exile our knowledge requires." So he's 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 embracing his uh, exile from the lodge, his exile from humanity, I guess, and in the, in the sense that he's kind of accepted that he's so deep into this study of the alchemy that he does he's not going to worry about what other people 
are going to think or say about it and obviously think that he's just uh, like a nut job, sort of. Oh, um, one thing, Bart, that I, I was, you know, as follow all these different forums and read stuff online and talk about it, someone, and I don't know how true this is, but I I'm assume good intentions that it's true, that shark teeth have traditionally meant protection. So wearing shark tooth shark, tar, shark teeth jewelry is like an amulet of protection. So I thought it was important when he, Interesting. he bequeaths the... So as Dud goes deeper into the adventure, is that some sort of amulet of protection moving forward? And yeah, I mean, based on him getting bitten by a poisonous snake and then bitten by a shark, he, uh, Dud could use it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very literal with him, his legs. Oh, it, you know, I don't... Hopefully we never see a scene when, our, when he's not limping. It seems like that kind of grounds him somehow, these uh, injuries that he has and then the next time we see them they're back uh i think they're where are they i think they're in front of the trailer again and blaze is just kind of going off about all these stuff he's been studying this is a you know happens later in the supermarket as well and it seems like dud is just kind of hanging by a thread to what he's talking about and uh he he, another great line i think i just keep repeating all these lines but i wrote down so many of them but he says dreams memory and reality they're all the same thing to a kid like i kind of noticed it at that time just because i kind of think about the way kids think from time to time since I have seven-year-olds. But but yeah, it really kind of, you, you kind of find out a little bit later it, it's into Blaze's past and you kind of tell that, that he's kind of speaking about himself and that how much that had an influence on him into sort of the person he is today. Point, he says he needs to, uh, you know, take a bath and get his purifying salts and unguants. Unguants being a, a word I had to, had to look up. I wasn't even sure how he was, what he was saying. Uh, I had a very similar look on my face as Dud does, and I was thinking about how, um, you know, Dud has, like, that's a, kind of a running gag you were saying, Chris, about what, what words Dud knows and which one yeah. he doesn't, and I think <laughs> the unguance is one of those uh, for sure. And let's see here, then he's, uh, so then, yeah, then we see him, he's taking a bath, he just, Liz needs to use the bathroom, but he's like, go ahead, I understand, I used to live in a in a commune myself, and there was no privacy. It's, it's really funny the way he's unironically talking about what he's doing to Liz as if it was something bad that had happened, negative that had happened to him in the past. Um, but, you know, of course, he just needs another hour for his ablutions, which I thought was a really funny line as well. And then the next time we're with Dud and Blaze, they're in the trailer, and they're waiting for Dorothy, the dealer, to bring the Lynx urine. Dud's kind of like tries to get him to take a nap. The bed is free. Why don't you take a nap? You know, go ahead. And he's, you know, and then that's when he kind of opens up about the fact that that he's had insomnia since he was a kid. This to me was kind of like the most tender scene, I think maybe at least there was a lot in this episode, but certainly for Blaze, we get to the background of where he's come from. And, you know, because he's mentioned like in last season that he was sort of like all, all my things are failures. You know, he's always thought of himself as someone outside of the system, but maybe that's just because he's actually a fraud himself. And we get a little inside to this where his parents would fight all night long, which would kind of keep him up at night anyway. And of course, he said they didn't like each other and they didn't like me. And Dud asks very innocently why. And he just sort of says, you know, what do you think? And he said he was the shame of the family. Really kind of crushes you to kind of piece together what this little boy was like in this situation. And then how it's like kind of led to him, who I I mean, you know, Blaze is a great guy, but he definitely seems a little bit trapped with some demons, especially at the moment. Yeah, he mentions that he's been drifting for 30 years, more into that sort of isolation. That's kind of what I sort of, that's where I sort of picked it up. It just seems that he's just kind of, I mean, ob- obviously isolated, you know, especially, you know, Blaze is probably in his mid to late 50s or something. So I'm sure when he was 
coming out as a teen, and probably prior to that, it was obviously not a very acceptable thing to be gay. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like another way I think the show handles these sorts of themes in a very um, subtle and refreshing way where there's like a normalcy attached to it where we don't have to identify it for everybody because like it should be it's sort of treated as like a kind of a normal everyday thing and then of course we have the uh the giant meltdown in the grocery store and one of the first things i noticed about that scene was that he was sweating like he had that sweat on the outside of his shirt which i'm all too familiar with but the other thing that kind of struck me was that i always the if you want to go to the coldest place in new york city in the middle of the summer it's always going to be a grocery store. I mean, there's a brand new grocery store that opened up across the street from Sidecar. And I feel like he's cranked it up to make it extra cold in there as if a way to sort of appeal to people. But it, it I mean, it's like walking into the walk-in box. Uh, it's kind of chilled out since the weather's gotten a little nicer. He's, I think he's turned it down a little bit or she, whoever runs the store. But that kind of struck me that he would, like he's in such a fit that he can, he can get sweaty enough that it perspires through his shirt um, in the middle of the grocery store, especially in the produce aisle, because they're, all those open produce things are usually refrigerated. And yeah, so he's really at his wit's end, it seems. He probably hasn't slept in weeks. He is. Uh, he finds the lemon. Oh, I just realized that I completely skipped the whole scene of Blaze sneaking back into the lodge and getting caught by a Scott, because that was kind of important, because that was something they were discussing, that he needs to get his the last few things from the lodge to kind of continue his work, so I'll just put that in now, I guess. Anyway, he, when he's at the grocery store, you know, he's going on and on to Dud, Dud's hang, just like kind of, uh-huh, uh-huh, he's kind of giving him that assurance that it's going to be okay, buddy, and uh, he just spot, you know, spies the lemon, pulls in up on it, you know, looks at it, starts laughing, falls to the ground. He's kind of laughing, crying. And then as a way to get out of the situation, he eventually takes him to Ernie's place. It's where Ernie complains to Dud that he's responsible for this. This is on you, Ernie says. You know, you you let him get this far into it. You you should have sort of reined it in, I think. It's kind of Ernie's critique, basically. And so he just, and he tells Dud to get out. So uh, when he leaves, then Blaze is sort of, you know, says, you know, I could hear everything you guys were saying and shouldn't blame Dud. Of course, in the morning, he leaves a little note for Ernie and takes off. And then we don't see him till the very end when he's checking himself into Ludibrium. I hope I'm saying that correctly, Ludibrium, which is an office that was across the hall from Dr. Kimbrough's office and I think also where El Confidente went, starting to have a bigger role as the season goes on. Yeah, we have we, and have, we have three kind of corporate, there's sort of three corp, shadow corporations, right? And now, well, not even a shadow, but Orbis, that mm-hmm. Librium or whatever that is. And then uh, what's the food company? What's the, what's Janet's company's name? Omni. Omni. Cap- Omni West. Yeah. yeah. So we have, there's three of these kind of all-encompassing multi-leveraged corporations now that probably and with with connections to each other even possibly but it is kind of funny that we've got these kind of three corporate characters out there and this one really i think with this episode and that piece on at the end it it really solidified the librium or whatever i'm never going to say it right uh as that third one here and i wonder who's behind that like i wouldn't i don't know it's kind of interesting to think about if it's a government organization or if it's maybe like some sort of ties back to um, Fritz Merrill, maybe somehow, or through Orbis, maybe it was a subsidiary or something like that when it was successful. 
Um, and anyway, and then, yeah, we get the big reveal where um, uh, Blaze goes over and meets Giamatti at the typewriter who's, uh, you know, typing away at his new book. And, of course, they realize they're both Lynx members and decide to play Uno. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter was watched the second time I watched it, she watched it with me. So she watches enough. to. She's like, she's like, we stop. And she's like, I kind of want to play Uno now. And I'm like, it's also 1030 <laughs> to go to bed. Um, all right, Mark, you have our second rundown plot point. I do. And, uh, you know, it's funny, the show, this episode started with a montage. And I know the guy I'm filling in for, Jim, always hates a montage. But I thought this one was especially good. I liked that. And I'm going to cover Liz here. We see Liz in the walk-in, sort of a, a callback to the cold, frozen I loved it. experience we got with her on the last episode. And as her story gets going, she is talking to the higher stakes employees, trying to uh, kind of cover the, the day's plans with them. And they realize she realizes that they haven't been paid. And that's a huge storyline going through this season, the idea of money and how it plays in. And I think Liz takes this personally. And so what we see with her is uh, is, is is tracking down the uh, the Omni Corporation getting inside the head of our man, uh, the Vic Sahay character. Um, oh, Tarquin. Tarquin. Tarquin, right. So she eventually brings in Tarquin to address the employees, and Tarquin gives them the idea that, well, you're not going to get paid, but maybe, just maybe, we'll give you a piece of the company, which, of course, we learn in a conversation just a few minutes later that, well, they're going to be Class C non-voting shares. And this exchange that they had with uh, between Tarquin and Liz, where Tarquin says, I am but a vessel for Janet. I do not have what she does not put into me, is sort of one of my favorite lines of the episode. I mean, it's, it's hard not to love every Tarquin line, but I think he's the, the perfect cipher for this Janet figure. This, I think, troubles Liz. We see her head back to her apartment. She encounters Blaze in the bathtub, as, as Bart covered. And the next day, she realizes that she's got to cover for her employees. Again, she's got to be a decent person and goes way out of her way, visits Bert, and takes out a loan, which has got to be at interest levels none of us want to contemplate, and covers payroll, which I don't know, Bart. You talk about being a restaurant bar owner. Uh, would you ever do that? Well, I'm the owner, so I'm I'm ab- obligated to do that and, and, and have done that, sure. Yeah, I've taken money out of my own account to make sure that people get paid many, but, uh, many times. I, I, a very lovely sentiment, but I've, the idea of a manager doing that who works for a giant corporation, the fact that, that none of the employees are stealing the liquor bottles off the shelves, I'm surprised that all of these people are decent and willing to go along, except for, for Gerson, who uh, reasonably has to find a catering job with his cousin. So I love that there's just one line of dialogue that nods to a missing character who's off doing something real and grounded in reality that that reminds me that this show while being this magical fiction storyline 
also really connects us to, to sort of where we are with the, the struggle of everyday life. Liz decides that she's, she's got to find Tarquin. She's got to find Janet. She tracks down Tarquin, who is at a seminar where Janet is virtually present, but no one knows that. <laughs> There's the great tackle of the hologram that you know janet's really stepped up her presentation game obviously you know last season she was just on a couple of large uh 60 inch monitors and now she's even earlier this hologram. season we we get the the oh, right. tv monitor yes so yeah even in this season she's upgraded to uh uh telepresence but that clearly lets us lets janet know that that liz needs to have a conversation and i think impresses janet to some degree and we see Janet visit Liz's apartment where, once again, I think you guys have talked about it before, the sight gags with the table are yeah. uh, <laughs> Yet a, a highlight one. here. The, the prop yeah. MVP of the, the series so far. <laughs> Clearly. I love that the, the broken mirror at the entrance to the apartment <laughs> is still broken, but the, the table takes it. I mean, lots of prop fights. I mean, I know you guys got into the links last week. And, and Janet gets punched right in the nose. And what I love, again, is immediately we see the decency of Liz as they're in the bathroom cleaning Janet up. And and this is where I need you guys to kind of to help me out here. Does Liz accept Janet's invite to come on and be her assistant, part of the corporation? Where are we left with that? I think most definitely because she's made the you know, she's playing, she's paid the iron price, so to speak, in terms of like made the negotiative deal that's going to protect her people. So, and whether she advances herself or sacrifices herself remains to be seen, but she is definitely, she is definitely paid flesh for flesh. I think we're supposed to definitely believe that that's the transaction that took place. And I well, think Liz. Yeah, sorry. I thought, I, I kind of thought she was considering it because at the same time, she isn't, couldn't she be thinking that Janet is maybe just stringing her along longer? So, like, would it be better just to get the money now and bolt on higher stakes? At least get her staff paid, get her money back for the five grand, and then just bolt on the whole thing? No. I mean, I don't know. I I think she'll probably do it. It She definitely looks like she's considering it. But I do think that she's also considering whether or not this is just more smokescreen. I mean, that's, that's what Tarquin and Janet are all about. It's just sort of saying things like and and doing nothing and they're very good at it well except for i i think she makes the i i well now it'll be interesting to go back and just rewatch that scene specifically but i do think now right i think there could be it's contingent right like so i fully well this is actually going to be part of my prediction but i'll say it now because it's relevant i fully expect there to be a scene between bert liz and janet in the next episode so i think Whoa. yes i think I think it's contingent on those hurdles, you know, the first one being, you know, pay off my debt at, at the pawn shop. Uh, by the way, a little running theme of this this episode on two fronts was the, the horrific nature of, of payday loans and off-market loans. Not saying that banks are necessarily better, but they are better um, on, on that front because we get Champ talking about payday loans and we get this whole this whole aspect of having to, you know, no one ever thinks to go to a proper fiscal institution to get any of this, this money, which is also a running theme, but would certainly, well, it's probably not available to them. Right. I mean, they don't have any, um, you know, anything to back it on. I mean, if you don't own property, maybe, maybe not, but you know, fine. 
the, the proper knowledge of financial instruments, even available to the poor, is a big deal considering the things like payday lobby lobbyists who keep those things. So the the scam of payday loans actually in the, their reality is they keep them culturally acceptable and trusted beyond their utility in poor neighborhoods. It's not that you can't necessarily get smaller loans. That's actually that the bait and switch is actually that. But isn't the point sort of that there's no difference between that and Bert? Between like what? a Bert is sort of like if you're saying the representation of when you're uh, like what access to capital the poor have in terms of getting a loan, their only option is the payday loan scam, right? No, they're only then, the, 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 it, because that's what's culturally presented as their only option. The, the con is actually in keeping the, the level of community trust. So someone like Bert or a payday loan is seen as accessible and, and actually are so prevalent and and is seen as a more local, more community-based solution, and that's where actually the scam is. So you think that there is uh, available availability of legitimate banking for poor? I think that more so, yes, I do. Oh, okay. I I don't know much about it, but I, I would have guessed that no. And that's not, why things like Burton payday loans exist. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying the, the what keeping... The perception that it's easier, better, and more and more available at things like payday loans is actually how they keep the scam going, and where their lobbyists okay. fight good business, good government programs, and good fiscal laws that would actually open up or make more available or more known reputable opportunities through protected fiscal institutions. That things like manage mm. like manage interest rates, for instance. Mm. I, I like that you were, we're getting into loans now because that brings us back to Scott, who does have uh, some smart banking stories behind him, who has enough money to uh, provide TVs for the lodge. And I think that brings us into the Scott and, and Connie storyline, Chris, which you wanted to talk about. Oh, Mark looked like a pro. Uh, yes, so the next big uh, <laughs> plot point is actually... And I have to admit, I was on a hot streak, and I'm going to have a qualifier here in a second, but I was on a hot streak with my predictions that came crashing, burning to the ground as at probably around the midway point of this episode, the the marriage between Connie and Scott was all over but the paperwork uh, for all intents and purposes with a sweet scene where we get their marriage finally fold up and her really be, you know, Connie really have a lot of empathy empathy for Scott and still stand firm on where she wants to go in life. And I have to just say, I if this truly is the end of that love triangle part of the plot, I am excited. That felt like sometimes when I think about the, the show, like one of the more tropes that I get a little bit bored of and like the, the, the love triangle and who knows what. And they, I think they handled it well, so I don't actually want to make that a critique. But I'm kind of glad that that part of the storyline is in our rear view and we can just follow Connie's evolution. So we get that, they break up, we sort of see how Scott is handling it, which I think the kind of investing his money in something else into the lodge versus investing it into Connie. So he kind of even knows before he knows, uh, but you see his love and protection that, that, you know, service is his love language. So that starts to be poured into the lodge. So it could be, uh, poorly conceived and his love language let me just interrupt chris and wonder what <laughs> books are on your bookshelf i'm impressed wow you know hey 
You know, you gotta. It, it, it's a it's a grind, Mark. Us non noobs have to uh, stay current. You know. So anyway, but that is true. It is his love language. It, uh, yeah. Uh, and so we see the end of that, and we also see Connie start to pick up her life in some interesting ways. She sees the homeless guy uh, that Liz beat up, that was just kind of funny at that same kind of uh, ver- viewing veranda. And we see her at Temp Joy and running into her own boss and just sort of commentary that the, the big threat of journal- that journalism as a for-profit endeavor is under siege. And just another great Temp Joy, another character in Temp Joy, which I think now is our fourth regular cast member who's gone through Temp Fifth, actually, champ. So we've had five regular uh, cast members going through Temp Joy. And we see Connie really starting to say, like, I don't need these relationships. I don't need these kinds of fulfillment in my life. And I have to be, I have to be the individual driver, which is, you know, her, rel- her what she, what was revealed to her while she fell into the grave. So um, some really sweet moments and a lot of advancement on Scott and Connie's uh, story, which as a couple has come to an end. All right, Bart, cover Ernesto for us. Uh, Ernesto, um, yeah, big, uh, week for Ernie here. Well, to start, he's in the, you know, they're in the lodge and he's, uh, kind of questioning Scott's decision to bring in the TVs. Um, he says the TVs look nice, but then he says, you know, he mentions, oh, don't you think it's going to change the vibe in here? And, um, of course, Scott think that, thinks that's a great idea. The TVs is kind of a, a hilarious thing to me because that is a huge game changer when you go from actually people, a bar setting where people can talk to each other to the focus becomes on the TV and there goes all the atmosphere 100%. And a similar thing happened in my old bar. So that was a very uh, funny thing to me. If, like, if you had to ask me what would be the worst thing you could do, it's add more TVs. And then, of course... And don't forget an internet jukebox. Oh, the internet jukebox. Is that what that was? Yeah. Well, because those internet jukebox... That was what was funny about that because it says like... It has some cheesy slogan on it, and it has the, um, like, a kind of a very uh, loud design on top of it. But it did look like a very, like a regular jukebox, because usually those internet ones are just stuck up on the wall. Anita and Gil are kind of looking at it, shaking their head, you know. Yeah, the internet jukebox, another way to ruin a place. I Well, yeah, I have obviously very strong feelings about that. And then we've got Ernie. Next time we see him, is he's out in front of... Uh, that woman's house that we still at that point don't really know too much too Trish, many details. Right. Trish. And so she obviously sees him, you know, cause he's not very, not very discreet in that, uh, that van. So of course she comes in and then they have the conversation and we find out all the stuff about Ernie. We get all, finally all the backstory that, you know, that they were together, that they had a child, the child died, that time for him to move on. It's been 20 years. We learned that Ernie's not been able to say her name. And also that he has um, a certain dream, or I guess a nightmare, again with that like sort of the idea of the PTSD nightmare, that involves the daughter. And I guess he hasn't had it in a really long time, but when he's in Mexico with El Confidente, they get drunk, he's getting a tattoo, and that's in that scene where he's having the dream that we were sort of wondering what was going on. So now we sort of know um, that they met in the Navy, that's why he's dressed like that, and he's seeing her... And he goes to lift the sheet off the bed. It's like it looks like a like a glowing orb or something like that. I went back and watched that scene, and um, so I guess now we know that that was representing the baby. So we get a lot of that backstory in that part. And she also mentions, "I know you, Ernie. You're going to double down." And it's kind of funny, as if it almost like puts the idea in his head. Yeah. So then he <laughs> decides to say, "He's like, yeah, that is me in a terrible way." But you know what? I'm going to put five thousand down on five thousand dollars that I don't have 
on a huge upset. And so he goes, he makes the makes the bet with Bert, then runs into Liz, and she thanks him for uh, helping Dud out in the last year. It's a nice little moment between the two of them, in which she says, I don't get the lodge, which is why I always kind of feel like, it's like anytime Liz gets a chance to mention what she thinks of the lodge, it's always sort of negative. Not terribly negative, but I just don't see her ever being in it um, because of that. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's like yeah, there's two different showdowns too, also between Dud and Ernie before the end. Which you know, first it's at the lodge where Dud's telling him that Scott is ruining everything, and, and Ernie is kind of defending Scott, which was kind of interesting. It's almost like they're going through this thing with Connie together. It almost makes them a little bit closer or something. Uh, but then again, at Ernie's house when he's brought Blaze there, and he's basically like, I, you know, I really don't need this right now in my life, and you can, you got to stop like dumping on me, you know, because in a sense, it, it almost seems like what Ernie's annoyed with is that whatever he's going through, Dud doesn't always seem to get, and Dud always needs something from Ernie without recognizing that Ernie needs something from him, which then of course leads to that last scene, which um, the minute I, I think almost the second that Dud says, "Why don't you talk to Bert about getting rid of the bet?" It's, it hasn't even been twenty four hours. I'm sure he'll tear it up for you. I sort of knew he was going to go try to talk Bert out of it, and then that would also mean that Ernie was going to win, right? <laughs> and so, uh, Chris, you and I kind of talked about this, which I think is something very tremendous that the show is able to do, is sort of like hint at this thing that sort of is predictable, but it's the reaction from Ernie that was unpredictable. You know, because last we saw, he was telling Dud to get out. Like, you just brought Blaze to my house, and it's fine. I'll take him for the night, but you need to go because I'm kind of blaming you for allowing him to fall so far. The next time he sees Dud, Dud's basically telling him that he lost $20,000. And I was expecting Ernie to kind of lose his shit. And, of course, instead, what he does is... I think he's almost asking, like, how, like, how did you do that? Because he's like, because I'm going to go undo it. You know, like, you... Bert had no right to, to, to stop the bet on you, but then, of course, Dud tells him that he gave him his dad's watch. And then they had that scene, and then we get the final explanation of what exactly happened, and then that they had the daughter together. She was born early, and it seemed like they kept her alive for a year, but that she eventually succumbed to whatever was the physical issue at hand and how he sort of never recovered. He didn't stick around and fight it out. He split. And then that really, you know, and another sort of thing that, you know, the idea that, that Dud is the, like, the chosen one, um, we've sort of felt, and I think that's why, like, uh, Larry Loomis punches him in the face or something, because it's like he knows that Dud is going to replace him somehow. And it's not really so much that he's going to be the sovereign protector, the, like the greatest sovereign protector of all time, but instead it's almost like, the reason he was had come was to heal Ernie, essentially. And by innocently asking uh, what was her name, he kind of puts Ernie on the spot, and he hasn't. He just sort of ends up saying the name Amaya, the Night Rain, um, which then again we have that whole issue with like uh, swimming at night, water, and that kind of thing, which I thought was a really uh, good touch, and. Um, yeah, they share that moment together where they kind of reunite as pals and really get something out that they both needed, um, the admission of how isolated they both felt and the fact that, you know, Ernie kind of split from that life when, the, when it went down. He lost his daughter. They didn't recover. And he's never even talked to anybody about it since then. So, um, yeah, that's that's Ernie. And, Mark, you you really, we when we were pre-gaming a little bit, we, we thought that that was... That was a plot point, you know, that was the major plot point. But you really put an exclamation point on 
the importance of the plot of the sort of reconciliation and recombination of the Dud and Ernie partnership. You want to say more about that? Absolutely. I think, you know, we get the the scene of Dud in the old pool shop kind of realizing things. Dud sells his or gives up his watch to cancel this uh, debt that Ernie is possibly racking up. And then that meeting of, of Dud and Ernie, where, as, as Bart said, Ernie really gives us this unexpected, human, kind reaction to Dud. And they, they have a genuine moment there where both of them are looking at their past and facing up to those, understanding how the Lodge has saved them and understanding how Dud is able to, to be the person that, that Ernie is able to share this name with. I think... That's a a key moment that's going to move the story forward where all of these characters, and especially Dud, have have faced their paths, pasts, and and can now move forward knowing who they are and where they stand with each other. All right, so that brings us down to the rundown. Very plot-driven episode, ultimately. Lots of advancement and uh, forward momentum of the plot. But one thing that we discussed that really was a theme for this episode was kind of money, available cash, and and its connection to everyday life. Uh, the show obviously has lots of commentary about big economic systems, but it also and that also goes into the micro level about what that means for what how people live, how they live day to day, etc. So we wanted to kind of explore the theme of finances and individual lives and how they affect them and how this episode demonstrates that. Mark, you had a couple good observations. You want to kick us off before we just freestyle this a little bit? Absolutely. You know, it did strike me, and I don't think I mentioned this in our our little pre-meeting, that Ernie rents his house, which kind of struck me as odd. I did not see him as a a non-homeowner. But he's got the car up for sale. Like, times have have really gotten tight for Ernie, which uh, which is rough. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Tarquin offers the, the Class C non-voting shares. We get talks of uh, Connie's old boss in the, the Temp Joy offices talking about a leveraged buyout. I mean, it really is, as you guys discussed earlier, payday loans to uh, high-stakes uh, Wall Street finance. The show kind of covers it all and, and really explores that gamut in this episode, which uh, I appreciated. Huge thing for me, uh, that scene with Jeremy, um, when he's talking to Liz about how he's broke and all the cards are, he's all maxed out and he was living to paycheck to paycheck when Shamrocks got invaded by the rats. That was a real gut punch for me. Owning a small business, there are so many times when I know that I'm like depending on like a big night to kind of help get me out of it. And if uh, it's, uh, it doesn't happen, I mean, I, I used to that when he says that he wakes up for an hour every night and the, the hour lasts six days. I mean, I it's I mean, I just couldn't believe that how was a much, great line. Yeah, I've had I've gone through like I, I often will say that I kind of had to teach myself how to sleep. And now it's to the point where especially coming out of the summer where I can't look because, you know, I can refresh on my app and see how the restaurant's doing. And I just don't I won't look at it until the morning because otherwise I'm I, I'm I'm afraid of that happening is waking up right in the middle of the night, not being able to fall back asleep. And of course, you know, everybody knows that feeling when you 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 wake up in the middle of the night, then you eventually, I guess, do fall asleep. But the sleep is so weird that it seems like it, you're 
dreaming of sleeping and then you're not really getting good rest and then you wake up and you're groggy all day. Anyway, yeah, that uh, idea of the financial suffocation that Jeremy's going through just really was a gut punch for me. I, I felt like if someone asked me, like, well, how does, you know, how does it feel when blah, 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 I would have maybe told a story very similar to that. It's, it, the whole episode is uh, just, it, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's just everybody's drowning in it. You know, Blaze doesn't have the money for the Lynx P when Dorothy comes over. And that I love that line, too, when she says, I'm not in this game for the money. <laughs> And then the mark that, like, the decency you're talking about, too, is, like, everybody sort of broke, but they all kind of pulled together to, for each other, you know? And the way Liz does for the staff and get, takes that loan out, it's like, you know, that's what's sort of a big reason why I'm so drawn to the show is that understanding that all the characters have, that they're all in this together, and then they're all facing very real financial stress and consequences. Well, as you mentioned, when Dorothy the dealer comes over with the Lynx urine, and she's not in it for the money. That's where I think we get this great melding of the idea of the the magical nature of this show and its exploration of money and finance and, and systems. And I think there's something to be said there about the way those two things interact and how some characters like Blaze maybe count on the, the magical ideas of things, but then characters like Ernie really count on the money and and believe the money is the real thing and his bet where he's gonna quadruple his non-existent five thousand dollars is a a magical windfall almost for him yeah it's totally like hitting the lottery i also five thousand down on the underdog in that situation i thought it was gonna be more like a hundred grand or something but well just show you how how low the stakes are for him in a way right because the fact that twenty thousand dollars at that moment in his life would be a windfall is pretty is this pretty sad statement. I mean, which Ernie, I think, attests that where he's at at sixty. Right. Plus, the five grand is enormous to him since he has to sell his car to make rent. Yeah. A caddy for twenty five hundred or best offer, um, uh, unless there's like no transmission. That seems like a very low cost for a Cadillac that's fairly new. Well, no, um, he says yeah, it's the, not running. He does just say it's not running. Yeah, I know, but I thought that he was sort of saying that. Did no, he have why, car troubles? Before? Yes, they've established that. That's why he's driving the van. Yeah. That's right, that's right, that's right. So it, it does not, you know, it does not do the thing that car needs to do. Right. Right, currently. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like that. how damaging 5,000 would be to him, you know, the 20,000 doesn't equate the other direction, you know? It's almost like he would only... Like, I would only risk $5,000 if the payoff was going to be hundred grand or something. You know, if you told me you could risk five grand for 20 and I was in that kind of financial state, I, there's no way. But, I mean, obviously, we know that Ernie has, like, a little bit of an issue with gambling, right? Yeah, I would, yeah. And I like the way you drew the connection, which, you know, was like the negative reinforcement positively reinforced his next action in that, you know, when Tris said, right. you know, you're going to double down. And not only did he double down on just the impulse of going to bet, then he, whatever, I ten exponentially doubled down because he goes from what? I think his original bad idea was 500 and he goes to 5,000, right? Right, yeah. So you, you see him not only, so there's actually two levels of double down. Doubling down, yeah. Uh, the, the interaction to me that, like, I think spoke volumes around the struggle the show articulates is between Blaze and Ernie, sorry, Blaze and Dud in the, in the front yard, in front of the dragon, in front of the trailer, where, like, the elegance of Blaze's, which we've 
you know, he later bottoms out in this idea of the purity of soul and you can't ever think about the financial implications or think about what financial benefit that would come to you. We've seen that we've seen that not work out for Blaze as he descends into depression and gives up on all the things that actually brought him joy. His business, his apocalypse, you know, his weed store uh, was something that he liked, that kept him grounded, that kept him centered, that kept him, you know, with money to live. And since all that went downhill is actually mapped to his descent. And so, you know, this puritanical idea of some kind of Eldorado-like state where money is not important and that none of getting money to live and to be able to define how you live is so impure that nothing positive will come has very negative impact implications on blaze and and that's where dud actually you know like the kind of sensical yeah i get it i'm anti those things i'm pro a lot of these pieces but you know but at the same time like without some of that you have no chance to be successful and their interaction right there to me was a kind of fantasy versus reality argument that i thought was a short scene but actually kind of was you know what the show tries to detail and show on a weekly basis I think that's a, a key tension that, that runs throughout the series. And you're, I think you're right. It distills that really, really nicely. Right. And Blaze almost, you know, he's talking about um, getting into pure form so he can, um, you know, with the monium opus, basically, he, you know, in the sense he's kind of saying that he's going to reach this purity through the alchemy that's where he can, like, uh, change forms. But in, in, on the outside, it really just almost sounds like he's thinking about he's got suicidal thoughts. You know, he's going to do like what Wallace did or something, you know what I mean? Like to enter into the other dimension. But yeah, since he's, I mean, he's so adrift and I mean, yeah, he's, he's got a lot of, yeah, a lot of things he's been dealing with, but he's, yeah. Yeah. He has nowhere to live. He has nothing to eat and he has no mechanism for him to help people with his knowledge, which is what his store, you know, which there was, there was the enjoyment of work part of that which is very real for everyone right yeah everybody a, wants to feel productive right and which is which what running that running the apothecary represented to him it, it was a place where people came to him for his arcane knowledge and and that transaction fiscal and otherwise was deeply rooting for him as a character and once those things and then nowhere to nothing to eat i think it's a remarkable that he has this episode in a grocery store right like you know bart you said earlier he had you know how did he eat in the egg when you know he's in a grocery store surrounded by nutrients and these are these things that he hasn't allowed himself either you know through kind of a belief and uh, not caring bottoms out when like there's nutrients literally surrounding him and it comes crashing down on him that he's not taking care of himself on any level clearly life is given blaze lemons (laughs) (laughs) sorry and it's dud's job to make lemonade that's right so oh the other piece i wanted the lubribrium god whatever you however you say that if a word has like yes If it has too many consonants, I can't pronounce it as a general rule. The interesting thing here is like he doesn't need money, but they need his data. And so I wonder, like the show does has these kind of stealthy critiques of technology all the time. And, you know, this and it's interesting. There's the interesting French girl suddenly like to me. I was like, wow, that is a such a great commentary on social media and basically all of these 
free life-giving services that we're all sort of interacting with that do kind of give our souls something and do provide something and we pay quote-unquote nothing for but what they're surfacing your dreams your hopes your desires your identity what is that ultimate transaction so i i might be getting a little bit too deep but i love this idea that that's there I don't know that you're getting too deep there, Chris. When when El Confidente was, I, we believe he was in Ludibrium as well. Mm-hmm. Is that our? He our definitely take? was. You know, he he's trading his thoughts and his future yeah. paintings. So that idea is only reinforced here. And then I don't speak French, but uh, technology wise, I've got a little translator on my uh, my phone. So I held that up to the speaker of the TV, and it didn't get the full translation of of the woman on the couch who looked sort of very David Lynchian to me and it was a throwback to my childhood of watching Twin Peaks, which some of that feels like it's carried through in this show. But anyway, the French woman, uh, part of the translation that I, that I came up with on my phone is set fire to your face, which seems pretty much like you're right on the nose. That was uh, Genevieve, who's in the, the facility there. Right. Uh, right. I'm talking about Janet with the flaming head that's also in oh. El Cavanete's paintings and in the very very beginning when she jumps out of the airplane oh. her planet janet head is on fire so there you must go. Be some reference to that it's as well all a circle so this idea that there are places where you get this uh you know enjoyment at multiple levels companionship uh safe space all these things that these sort of social media sites legit- legitimately give you i'm not saying that those are even fully not not beneficial or not but they've created those kind of spaces in a digitally enabled world but what they do take a cost and it's a hidden cost and as blaze is that you know bottomed out he's entered in this thing and she says you know you know you're she even the the intake nurse or whatever says well, one, it says we actually can't give you anything of value, right? And here she's talking about sedatives, you know, helping him sleep, helping him cure his insomnia. She's like, well, let's be clear. Like, you, you won't get anything, you know, anything practical, or but you will get so much more, and you're helping us as much as we're helping you. And so that, like, if you're not if you're not paying, you're the product, right, about uh, lying about social media. So I thought that whole thing was a commentary on when we have no more money left to give or maybe people aren't even asking for direct cash they're asking for things that are actually way more deeper and that are actually the you know new oil that fuels the system and if people that look at uh, data there's a lot of great thinking around data is the new big oil so i just thought there i there were some interesting pieces in that scene and even to the point where like oh blaze is in a safe you know he's that maybe this is where he needs to be but that doesn't mean it doesn't have a cost we just don't exactly know that yet yeah and not to harp too much on the cohen brothers but that uh, when he's uh typing away at the typewriter in the look and feel of that room they're in and the debrium uh, definitely reminded me of barton fink I don't know if you guys have seen that, but uh, or yeah. how long it's been, but just that he, you know, after he goes through the whole thing and he just gets typing away and it, that's, it like clears his writing block and he's like hacking away at it. It just, you know, it reminded me a lot of that. I love the translator, Mark. Nice, nice pull. Burn your face. Burn Facebook. Maybe there was, maybe I, my, maybe my read wasn't overly uh, paranoid and uh, straw grasping. Not very Jim all. Floodian I, of you too, I think. Well, you know, you've got to honor those who go before us, right? That's right. That's right. You're doing very good justice to Jim. So we really, you know, especially coming off such a sort of metaphorical, metaphysical storyline of of circles, 
another way we slammed right back into the the real kind of day-to-day issues of this show tackles is is their money troubles you know which we kind of just scream right back into in this episode and it really is throughout and yeah i i just want to say that jeremy was really all of us in that that was such a great articulation of what that feels like and everyone has their own versions of it right it could be medical bills it could be whatever like you fill in the blank there's literally endless ways in which you could replace that narrative with something that still spells not enough money to pay for what i need to pay for and i have basic security right i mean isn't that kind of what you sort of want is it like ultimately i think people why people want to squirrel away all the money and and make a giant pile of it is because they have this notion that that's going to protect them from everything that's terrible about life i mean you know, getting old is expensive. Having children is really expensive. You know, taking a day off of work is expensive. You know, taking getting laid off and not having a job for three months is insanely expensive. I mean, you know, it's a terrible aspect of our society. And I actually think it's one of the reasons that the show doesn't have a huge audience. The yeah, you know, no, no one's necessarily you know when you've got you know a, a finite amount of entertainment hours to spend. You know, People aren't always going to necessarily want a sh- uh, uh, to to spend their time looking in the mirror, which is kind of amazingly what the show does at many different levels. So it kind of, in some ways, makes sense where you know no one's looking to spend an hour of uh, unwind time, quote unquote, to to have the have their four a.m. wake up nightmare retold to them <laughs> in the narrative. <laughs> Yeah, I what? guess that's what I get off on. I don't know. Yeah, what's our problem? <laughs> yeah, glutton for punishment, I suppose. Yeah. I don't. That's know. what. That's why Fear the Walking Dead is a much more uh, watched show on the exact same network. <laughs> right. You, you know, I will say that that one of my problems, because as as Chris has described me, I am uh, instrumental in the negative loop. I <laughs> feel that one of the things that's missing, and we only got a hint of it in the m- montage at the beginning was the donut shop, which to me is a real grounding location for this show. And I really want more of it. And not that I'm trying to lead us into our predictions, but I hope there's more. That's my that's my hope for the future is more donut shop because I like the characters there. I like the sunny nature of that facility. I like how it uh, gives us a little hope and a little grounding. Yeah, outside of a yeah. sad dud and, and obviously Bert. We haven't been back to the... That locale since Nemo. the uh, since the uh, the pool business Showdown. fight, yeah, the monster truck incident, right? Yeah. In, the, in the episode, the slide. All right, let's get into our next seg- segment. Let's jump into our alchemists of the week. Mine. I'll start us off here. I'm going to go pretty literal. I think Liz is my alchemist of the week because she was able to buy time, turn nothing into gold, and then the gold standard, she got probably to back it up and to get it paid for in in a fast way. We don't know what the ultimate price of that will be or the journey that that will get her on, but she was able to get paper into gold in terms of checks cashed for her staff and probably be able to get herself out of that bind quickly as well. So just in her ability to keep everyone fluid and moving along with enough money to live their lives, I am saying Liz is my alchemist of the week. Bart, 
Um, I'm going to go with Ernie, just in the sense of the transformation that happens from Ernie's old self to his uh, hopefully new self. You know, I we finally find out all these things about his past, and I just think in that moment when he basically finds out that Dud, who he's been who's been getting on his nerves now quite a bit, it seemed like they sort of reunited at the beginning of the season. And uh, but of of late, when he's going through all his stuff, that Dud is starting to be Dud in a way that gets under his skin. Just in that moment when he kind of realizes that he's not going to get twenty grand, he just sort of like takes a breath and sits down on the couch, and then kind of is able to refocus. I think on sort of what's important by kind of realizing Dud would give up that watch for him. I think puts it into this perspective, sort of what's important in life, and not trying to wish and hope that some lottery of a football game is going to make his life better and that maybe it's time to, you know, stick with the people that are important to you and recognize that they're important to you. And then that in itself can be fulfilling to you as well. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Ernie. I think when Doug tells him that, you know, you have something deep inside of you that needs to come out, like my shark tooth, um, he kind of it seems like that kind of sets in like, cause obviously he knows and he, because he's been thinking about it recently as well, that he, he's not able to mention his daughter's name. And it's sort of like he, it's like Dud hits the nail right on the head and he kind of recognizes that. And I think that he goes through a sig- very significant transformation. So he's my alchemist of the week. All right, Mark, your first, your first ever alchemist of the week. Oh, the, the, the pressure is, is clearly on here. And the, uh, the real true part of me wants to agree with Bart. I love the transformation that Ernie undergoes, but I'm uh, a little more offbeat. And as much as I want it to be Tarquin for uttering the line, you can't disrupt a disruptor. I'm going to have to, uh, (laughs) I'm going to have to say my actual alchemist of the week is Bert who saves having to pay all of that money out to Ernie. Uh, He gains a watch and he utters in this line, because he's such a character, so different from all of the others, I sit here, people come in, business is conducted, services are rendered, needs are met, and the days go by. I love just a character who is so true to who he is, recognizes a deal, but lives that quiet uh, criminal life that he lives. So he's my alchemist of the week. But really, it's good call. It's it's almost like uh, the show can't be the show unless uh, Bert has that watch. It's got to find itself back into his shop at some point. Yeah. So maybe maybe we'll calculate how much money he's made off that. What we've learned was a fairly worthless watch in the end. I think he's at least in he's well, we know he's above 10,000 at this point. But uh, maybe we'll see if we can't get the exact number in a future episode. All right, doors are opening, plots are advancing. Let's do our predictions for either next week or going forward in Season 2. I'll start just because I kind of already telegraphed mine earlier. I'm going out. Actually, I will point out, as wrong as I was on my last prediction, I was right in my prediction that I would be wrong. (laughs) So that's some level of hot streak continuing. But I guarantee we will see a scene... Next week, between Liz, Janet, and Bert in the pawn shop. I'm going explicitly with that. 
Mark? I uh, am terrible at predictions. I'm not one to, to look forward for a show. I like to enjoy it in the moment. But well, as you, are I was Jim's, watching, you are Jim's replacement this week. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, reversing the negative loop. But I think uh, as we've gotten more Liz on this show, it means we've gotten more Janet. And I think Janet, we're going to learn Janet and Omni are somehow tied into the history of Orbis. Obviously, it's all going to come together. I don't quite know how that will happen, but I think Janet is related to Orbis somehow in her past. Mm. Good, good one. Yeah, interesting. I mean, she is on the she is on the plane with the Lynx guys, and that's all tied into. But Orbis. we think, we think, we think, we think. Jim's prediction is a good one. It could be a dream of El Confidente. All right, my prediction, I'm going to predict that my prediction does not come true, but I can't help making it anyway. But I predict that Bert is going to give the watch back at some point before the series or the season ends. Maybe not the season, but the series ends. I think that not because he's like, or I guess, like I think it's a foolish to think that Bert is going to do something sentimental. That's why I think it actually won't come true. But I just think at this point, he's he's basically made 28 grand off of it in the last, like, month. And he knows, we already know this, that he knows that it's it's actually not worth anything. And so what harm would it be to just sort of go ahead and give it to them? Like, maybe when, to tie into one of my other predictions, that Liz is, is, is leaving Southern California, going somewhere else, and he's going to give it to her as, like, a going-away gift or something like that. And that's that's my prediction. The watch just, is coming back to the Dudley. I just want to, I just want to point out that uh, as both the show and our podcast are constantly wrestling with uh, different metaphors, examples, <laughs> arguments around f- uh, fiscal instruments, models, and systems, that Bart and I have both now shorted our own predictions. So we have <laughs> hedged bets. We have shorted our own <laughs> positions on our own predictions, which is makes us uh, actually fine capitalists in the end. Um, bet against our own interests and make money whether things happen or not as we predict them. With that, a couple of show notes. Uh, one, well, Mark, how can people find you uh, and want to follow up on things? Do you want to be known? Oh, I'll give you my... Uh... As, as a capitalist, I believe also in trying to win things. So a number of years ago, I created an Instagram account designed to enter contests and hopefully uh, make some magic happen, if you will. So I suggest that you follow my Instagram account. That's other Mark B, Mark spelled with a C. I don't actually enter contests. I just, like every old man on Instagram, post travel photos and whatnot. But other Mark B at Instagram is the best place to find me. All right. And uh, for Bart and for myself and the show, all of that pertinent information is in the show notes. We live pretty actively on uh, the pod 49 at the pod 49 Twitter handle. And uh, we're also individually on Twitter as well. We also mix it up a little bit in that great Facebook fan group, Burn Facebook. But I do want to say I can't give full details, but we've been hinting at this for a while. 
But we are going to start running some interviews with individuals who are responsible for the creative output of the show over these next couple weeks. We're not sure if we're going to tag them onto these episodes or run them as standalones, but between now and the end of the season and some of our recap on the season, we do plan on having some people in front of and behind the cameras on as special guests. So stay tuned for more details about that. But until then... See you at band night. <laughs>